0: Welcome, everyone. Can you all... Is this working? Great. Um, the title of today's forum is Taking Control of College Costs. I'm Mary Beth Markline. I cover higher education for USA Today, and I've been wrestling with this issue for the entire time I've been higher education reporter for USA Today, which has been about 12 years. Um, as I prepared for today's session, it actually sent me down memory lane a little bit. One of my very first assignments was... Um, My editor wanted me to go to Nashville. There was this commission created by Congress to look into this vexing problem of why college costs were so high and what could be done about it. This commission had been hearing testimony and reading reports and things for the last previous several months, and we're going to have this kind of wrap-up meeting um, in Nashville at Belmont University to kind of decide what they were going to put into their final report, which they had a deadline that was coming up pretty quick. Um, Just to give you a little bit of perspective, at the time, I went back and looked at the story I wrote. At the time, a GAO report had said that tuition had gone up between 1981 and 1994, 234%, and family incomes were up 82%. Um, I didn't take the time to figure out what that looks like today, but I think we all know that tuition has gone up. Um, So they held their hearings, and they, I don't want to overstate this, but... As the, they wore on, you could sort of hear that the consensus was essentially that, yes, college is expensive, but there are a lot of complicated reasons why. And yes, colleges could be more transparent about what they do, but really, parents need to understand how to plan for their students, their kids' education a little bit better. It might not surprise you to find out that seven of the 11 commission members were college presidents. Um, the next morning, the head of the commission completely reversed himself. This was my entry into Washington politics. The next morning, the, the head of the commission completely reversed himself, said that colleges need to redouble their efforts to rein in costs or they were going to risk f- uh, the threat of federal price controls. Somebody got to him between the end of one day and the beginning of the other. Oh, and they also uh, extended the deadline. They, they let them, Congress gave them longer to, to decide what they were going to conclude in this report. So basically, the report sits on a shelf somewhere. Tuitions are going up. The Spellings Commission more recently looked more closely at accountability in higher education. And in 2011, colleges that raise their tuition too high will have their names dragged through the mud on a a Department of Education website that is going to kind of keep tabs on whose prices are going too high too fast. The question is whether that's enough. Or is there something more that the federal government can or should do? And that's what this panel is going to be talking about today, the proper role of the federal government, if any, in holding higher education institutions more accountable for when it comes to spending. Um, I'm going to introduce the speakers now, but just a little bit of background about how this all came to be. And, Neil, please correct me if I'm wrong. But Bob Mar- this panel was inspired by a paper by Bob Martin called The Revenue-to-Cost Spiral, that looks at why higher education keeps getting more expensive. The paper was then discussed at a Cato Institute meeting that I think Neil was involved with. That discussion led to a blogging critique of the, of, of the whole issue by Kevin Carey, which then led to a critique of Kevin's critique by Neil. <laughs> Which then led to emails flying all over the place, and um, some the Pope Center, represented by George, uh, published an edited version of their email commentary back and forth. And if you haven't had a chance to look at that, I think you would, if you're here, you would find that interesting. So that's my understanding of how this all came to be. Um, and just real quickly, I'll introduce the four speakers in the order that they'll be speaking, and then give them the microphone. So Bob Martin, an economist and professor emeritus at Center College, wrote a book uh, on higher education economics called Cost Control, College Access, and Competition in Higher Education. He's the one who wrote the paper that got this whole thing started, and he basically argues that transparency is essential for higher education and that the government should play a key role in seeing that that happens. Neil is associate director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom, He's the author of a book called "Feds in the Classroom: How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education," which I think sums up his views pretty well. Um, <laughs> he also wrote the higher education chapter in Cato's, uh, the Cato Institute's latest handbook for policymakers. Um, The third, uh, Kevin Carey will speak third. He is Education Sector's Policy Director, and he also argues that the federal government has a role in requiring colleges to disclose useful information about how they spend their money. He came on my radar screen a few years ago when he wrote um, a paper basically proposing a new way to rank colleges in which the federal government, he felt, needed to play a role because colleges wouldn't do it by themselves. And finally, George Leaf is director of research for the John William Pope Center for Higher Education Policy. He's the author of a Pope Center paper called The Overselling of Higher Education, and as that title suggests, the paper raises concerns about what the cost associated with kind of hyping the importance of college has for people whom, who, for whom he said may be, quote, academically indifferent to, to college. Uh, every, each of the speakers will get about 10 minutes, and then we'll follow up with, I'll give them all a chance to um, rebut the other comments made, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So, uh, Bob, you're up.
1: It's a pleasure to be back to Cato again, and um, particularly in this particular venue. I guess I would start by saying uh, that there are essentially four separate theories for um, a rising cost in higher education. Uh, the first of these is bundling additional services. Uh, we're doing more things than we've ever done before um, that didn't used to be part of uh, the academic experience, and that adds to cost. The second is is unfunded government mandates um, that increase the cost. The third is uh, Bommel's cost disease, which is um, a discussion of why there is a separation between, um, between productivity and real wages paid in, uh, in higher education. And the fourth is then the revenue to uh, cost theory, which was basically uh, the original work by H.R. Bowen in 1980. Um, uh, Dr. Bowen did a comprehensive empirical analysis of um, higher education, uh, and he noticed several regularities in that uh, in that study. And he he titled these the five laws. Uh, and the first one is the um, regularity that institutions in higher education compete. Uh, and try to maximize their reputations for quality, compete for prestige, all of that sort of thing. The second thing uh, that he concluded is that there really is no limit to the kinds of projects that higher education can do that would have a quality connotation to it. So there's always room for more expenditure, in other words, because of that. The third thing uh, was that um, uh, institutions raise as much money as they possibly can Uh, per given time period, and then the fourth thing is they spend virtually everything that they raise uh, or at least the income from what they raise. And the fourth thing is this connection between revenues and expenditures. The notion here is that revenues tend to cap expenditures. So every time you release the revenue cap, expenditures are going to rise, and as a consequence of that, the um, um, the cost per student is going to rise along with it. Now, it's probably a good idea to notice that uh, uh, this was written in 1980, and if you go back and you inspect what has actually happened in terms of college costs in the last 30 years, uh, the empirical evidence seems to be quite consistent with um, uh, Professor Bowen's five laws here. Um, the point, too, about these these four different uh, causes of cost I wanted to make, too, is that these are not competitive theories about cost. They're really complementary. In other words, all four of these things make a contribution uh, to rising cost, and some of them have a complementary relationship to each other that, that uh, we could explore, but won't have time today, uh, which uh, one of them reinforces the other. Now, the primary criticism about Bowen's work was it was entirely empirical and didn't have behavioral foundations. Uh, The behavioral foundations for this basically come from three separate things. One is the, um, uh, the nonprofit status, the tendency for uh, nonprofit institution's objective is to maximize the service that they are providing, uh, and that break-even budget constraint means they're going to spend everything they have in terms of the revenue to do that, because after all, that's their objective. Uh, and then uh, the... Um, uh, the second thing after that is what is referred to as the principal-agent problem. Everybody is, is very familiar with the principal-agent problem, maybe not in the, under those terms, but certainly they are familiar with it uh, in terms of the, the controversies you see arise every now and then, both in politics and in, uh, in the private sector, when we have uh, reports of executives taking um, uh, excessive perks out of the institution uh, or out of their enterprises for their own benefit. The principal agent notion is that you are hiring someone else as a principal to uh, undertake some management of uh, finances for you, and there's always an incentive problem there uh, in that the agent may actually do things that are in their own interest rather than your interest as the principal. Clearly see that in politics all the time. We uh, we vote for politicians to go to to office to make decisions in our benefit, and frequently find later that they've taken decisions in uh, in their own benefit. You see it also in healthcare because that's what defensive medicine is uh, practices that are taken to defend the doctor rather than actually what are needed for the healthcare experience. All right, so um, so these things always cause higher costs. So in other words. Uh, The primary evidence you would see uh, in terms of uh, situations where you do have a serious agency problem um, would be whenever uh, costs are abnormally high. Well, again, looking at the last 30 years, the rate of cost increase in higher education per student in real terms has been higher than uh, than any other service sector uh, cost, and it's also been an, along the same lines of the increases in healthcare costs uh, as well. Um, the the last thing is the reputation com- uh, competition uh, between uh, between institutions. This comes from what economists call experienced goods—the fact that people are uncertain about the quality of the goods and services that are being provided. That's the only sense in which reputations would matter. If you could actually inspect and see quality before you bought it, for instance, uh, you would have no need to look at somebody's reputation. So reputations only matter when consumers are uncertain about the product quality. Well, that creates a very pernicious uh, 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 incentive system in that uh, what consumers do is they then use proxies for quality like the amount that an institution spends per student. So that connects reputation with the amount spent per student, so it also creates a situation where any institution that unilaterally tried to reduce its cost, that would be interpreted by, uh, by the, the by consumers as an attempt to reduce quality. so the incentive then is to spend as much as you can per student uh, in order to uh, to get this uh, benefit to your reputation um, and then looking at both of these things in terms of the issue involved, the transparency, there are really two types of information that are needed. The first type is the information that's that's needed in order to to control principal-agent problems in higher education because there are very few natural constraints on principal-agent issues in higher education. And the other source of information that's needed is the information about value-added for teaching. So it's two separate sets of information that are needed here in this issue. I would also say that I don't have any strong priors one way or the other in terms of how that information becomes becomes uh, available to the public. I mean, I'm not really advocating a government solution to this uh, or necessarily a private solution. I know that something needs to be done to, as uh, Andrew Gillen calls it, nudge the um, suboptimal Nash equilibrium that currently exists in Uh, in higher education competition to make more of this kind of information available. Okay. Okay.
2: Uh, now, I had to, to make things a little difficult for the Cato staff because I guess I work here. and So I'm going to use a PowerPoint, which requires rearranging of tables and things like that. So just bear with me while all the equipment comes down. I do want to thank everybody for coming today. I especially want to thank Bob for his paper and for the Pope Center for um, co-hosting today and for publishing that paper. Um, and I'm going to try and operate our, uh, this is our little remote control, and I could get it wrong, and I think every time I've tried to use this, I've been talking about higher education, and I do it wrong, and I blame colleges. So if I get it wrong, just blame higher education for it. Um, so as you can guess, as you got from the introduction, I'm going to be arguing that the primary driver or one of the primary drivers of the college price spiral is student aid, and it's aid that comes from th- third parties primarily taxpayers, but also other third parties. And, and this quote, I think, really encapsulates exactly why this occurs, and, and it goes back to what Bowen said, but I, I just like the colorful way Derek Bach said it. He said, universities share one characteristic with compulsive gamblers and exiled royalty. There's never enough money to satisfy their desires. So now let's see if I can get this right, because this is... No, I can't. All right, I'll use the keys. So that means Kenny Rogers is one of the similar to higher ed, and we have Mary Queen of Scots, and then ultimately higher ed is driven to get every dollar that they can. Now I'm going to show you a series of slides that I think illustrate pretty well that it's the third party payer that enables colleges to raise prices without making it difficult or extremely difficult for their consumers to buy the product, because the people paying that extra amount are ultimately taxpayers or third parties. this comes from the College Board's Trend in College Prices 2008. The, the upper, uh, or the, the taller bars, are the sticker price, essentially that is charged per pupil. And, and first we're looking at private schools, four-year private schools. And then I have a, a, a trend line there that shows that this is every year from 1993-94 academic year to 08-09. You have about a $713 increase in the sticker price. Um, If you look at the price after grants and tax credits, so this is free money. This is money that students don't have to pay back. You can see it's less steep of a curve and it's a a lower price, which suggests that colleges are able to raise their prices because it's not the consumers who are paying much of that additional cost. It's someone else, and that's typically taxpayers. Uh, This is, the again, the similar chart. This is for four-year public schools. You can actually see slightly uh, bigger difference now in the slope of the line between the uh, sticker price and what is actually paid after grants and loans, after the free money. Now, here's a, a chart showing essentially the same thing. Now, I should start off by saying this is an estimate that I did, and I had to adjust for enrollment and different costs of different sectors of schools um, because you can't, you can't easily get the information of, well, all people who went to public colleges paid X and got X amount or Y amount in, in aid. So I had to do some adjustments. So this is an estimate. But you see the same pattern as you saw in the college board data. So the tall lines, the biggest, highest bars, are the sticker price. That's what people are, you know, charged uh, by colleges and universities. Then the second line, like before, is after the, the free money, the grants and the, and the tax credits. Note that I do every, well, no, this is every year, okay. No, every other year, right. So this is these numbers are roughly double. It's because College Board did one year at a time. I did two years at a time just so I could fit it all and it was easy to read. So you see the upper bars are the sticker price, then much lower, and at a lesser slope, is after the the free money, the grants. Um, And then most interesting is the bottom line, which is after you also include loans. Now of course loans have to be paid back, or that's the intention of loans. Uh, But most loans, these are only the federal loans, by the way, per pupil. Um, And while they do have to be paid back, Ordinarily, there are lots of loan forgiveness programs, and also these loans typically have very generous terms, very low interest rates, so this is sort of cheap money. And after you include the free and the cheap money, you see that it's almost a flat line, not entirely flat, but almost flat, so that all these increases that you're getting in the sticker price seem to be borne by third parties here directly or third parties subsidizing it, which speaks powerfully to the student aid enabling colleges and universities to bring in as much money they can and spend it without making it harder to get customers. Now here's a similar, obviously this pretty much the same chart, only here we're looking at four-year public schools. I won't go through those lines again. Now, one of the common arguments is that, well, what really drives college prices isn't the student aid. It's that states and local governments have had to cut their expenditures on public colleges and universities, forcing schools to make up for the loss of revenue by raising tuition. Now, of course, this wouldn't explain at all why private schools continue to raise their tuition and their other costs or prices at an extreme rate. But what what this come, shows, and this is from the state higher education executive officers, is those top bars um, are the the per pupil state and local expenditures on higher education. You can see, yes, it, it goes up and down, uh, sort of like a roller coaster, you know, with the business cycle. But that trend line shows that the trend is not one of precipitous declines in government expenditures on state colleges and universities. It's about eight dollars. Um, uh, a year, and this is for the last 25 years. Now, that bottom line shows the revenues that public colleges get per pupil through tuition, and that is net of state aid, uh, state tuition aid. And that shows very clearly it, it's a pretty consistent upward trend, and if you smooth it out, it's about $73 a year in additional revenue per pupil through tuition. And again, what that suggests is it's not decreases in government appropriations to public colleges that lead to these price increases. It's that they can do it because students get additional third-party money to enable them to pay higher rates. Now, I'm just going to talk briefly, briefly about the, the arguments that the key to controlling these things are, one, transparency in terms of where uh, colleges and universities are putting their money, what they're spending it on. And then the second type of transparency, showing what students are actually learning. What's the value added from going to college? So I'm going to start off with the idea that you can force colleges to report things and then there'll be transparency and everyone will know what's going on and they'll be able to be educated consumers. Well the reality is we have to deal with government failure and typically those people who would be held accountable will game the system and they'll usually win. You know, if you think back to political science and the iron triangles where the people who are regulated are actually sort of in league with the regulators. this is often what happens and people of course naturally do all they can to find loopholes and to avoid real accountability. And to illustrate, just provide one out of thousands of possible illustrations for this, Think about the No Child Left Behind Act. The No Child Left Behind Act said all schools and all states will have standards, we're going to have accountability, we're going to have tests, and all students by 2014 will be proficient in math and reading. That sounds great, right? And they said not only that, but you have to report all this data, so we're going to know exactly how your schools are doing. But, of course, we know that states and school districts have gamed this massively where they've set lower cut scores to define proficiency. They made tests easier. They've hidden data on how safe or unsafe their schools are. And I want to just give a very visceral, something that can really make you feel how this has happened. So this is a quote from the Michigan superintendent of, of schools, former superintendent of schools, Thomas Watkins, reported July tenth, two 2002. And he was talking about budget problems in the state of Michigan, which are very rare for Michigan, but they were even having them in 2002. And he was saying, no matter what the budget pressures, we will not lower the standards in our schools. Okay, now we go ahead three weeks. This is now after, under the No Child Left Behind Act, the first list of needs-improving schools, what were often called failing schools, came out. And Michigan had a disproportionate number of schools on this list. And so he said, when people were talking about, well, are we going to make our standards easier so that we don't look bad, he said... Yes, we are. Michigan stretches to do what's right with our children, but we're not going to shoot our shells in the foot. So we go from, we're not going to lower standards, no way, to, well, except we don't want to look bad under this new law. So much for transparency. And then the other question is, well, how about that value added? What metric could we have that we could see what students are actually learning? What's the benefit they're getting from a college or university? The problem is, people go to college to study myriad different things. You have English majors, you have calculus, well, you have math majors, you have engineers, you have all sorts of people studying all sorts of different things. How do you encapsulate what they've learned into one metric or two metrics, especially something the results of which politicians, because this would be done, most people are asking, through government, something a politician can put into one or two sound bites. Our kids, you know, they went to college knowing X and now they know Y. It's impossible to capture the huge diversity of what people want out of college in something that simple. And then the other thing is, it's not just what you major in, what you learn in class. People go to colleges for numerous different reasons. I went to school in Washington, D.C. in large part because I wanted to be in Washington, D.C. People might go to college because they actually are looking for the top party college, and, and that might actually be good because those people then become sort of nodes and they bring other people together. And those people then, you know, work together when they get older. So there are lots of different things that go into college and university you can't reduce to one metric. And there's no you know, omniscient person who can say that this person's reason for choosing a school is good and this person's is bad. So there isn't one metric, even close to one metric, that can encapsulate everything people might want and might be valuable in higher education. So what's the answer? Well, as you might expect I was going to say, the market is the answer. And there's, there's very realistic reasons for this. You don't want to lose that freedom. You don't want to lose that diversity. You don't want to lose the competition and innovation that makes higher education good. But you also want to have accountability. Well, the key to that accountability is have people pay with their own money or money they get voluntarily because you could get loans, even without the federal involvement, if you have real aptitude It's in my interest as a lender to give you money because you will probably make more money as you get older. It would be mutually beneficial. But you would get that money voluntarily, not third-payer money, not taxpayer money, that you don't care how you spend it and that the person giving it to you has no control of. Then you have real accountability because people say, this is my money, I want to know what I'm getting for it. And if you don't tell me that, then I simply won't go to this school. And we'd have accountability without that loss of the really important freedom, competition, innovation that we get with the current system of higher education, which makes our system of higher education really much better than anywhere else in the world. And with that, uh, I'll conclude and now turn it over to Kevin.
3: Well, uh, thank you to all of you for coming, and, and thanks for the Cato Institute for inviting me to participate in the event. Um, I, I think it's worth, in thinking about this question, to to take ourselves back to around 1980 or so, because um, that, that was really sort of a point of inflection in the American higher education system. For the 30 years before that, from 1950 to 1980, the higher education system changed an awful lot. We basically built an entire national community college system from scratch. I think in the the 1960s we averaged one new community college a week opening for the entire decade of the 1960s. We had a huge expansion in the number of people who were attending college, um, partly because of civil rights, partly because of changes in in, uh, the way women uh, entered the workforce, um, partly because of changes in the economy, Um, our, our state higher education systems grew and grew and grew um but since 1980 the the core uh, public and nonprofit sector basically what it was then uh is what we have now we have a big increase in the for-profit sector but still most students are attending the the uh private and uh, uh public sector and that I think is the the cost there or what we're most concerned about in talking today um so so what happened over those 30 years? Well, um, we had the same system then as we had now. Um, college was – we did not have government-mandated transparency um, of the kind that, that, that Bob Martin talked about. And college got more and more and more expensive. Um, in good times, college cost more. In bad times – College costs more. It always just costs more. It's like the tide coming in. Um, The College Board is going to release a report in a few weeks, I assume. It will certainly say that college costs more. Once again, um, uh, students are borrowing more money. Uh, College gets more and more expensive. So, uh, if we don't do anything for the next 30 years, since we're not going to build a whole lot more public institutions, um, I expect that we can have more of the same. I mean, Mary Beth gave us a nice, I think, 15 years into that time window. we had basically the same thing happen for the next 15 years. If it was 240%, it's about 500% now, um, even as median family income uh, didn't increase nearly as much. So, what could we do? Um, I, I think rightly everybody is is uh, looking at that question from the perspective of what are the root causes of this of this relentless price increase. Um, Neil is correct to say that, that uh, state support is not declined in the way that institutions like to say that it has. There, there has not been a, a massive disinvestment in, in higher education. Um, so the subsidy levels have stayed about the same. Um, but uh, it seems like the sort of two competing theories that we're addressing here today are the uh, third-party payer theory, which is that is – that, um, and then the not-enough-information theory. And and we have the third-party payer theory here and then not enough information theory over there. Okay, well, what are the implications of a solution based on those two diagnoses of the problem? Um, The implication of the third-party payer diagnosis, the subsidy diagnosis, is that we should stop doing that. Um, We should pull all that money out of the higher education system. Um, I I think that is both problematic um, and very unrealistic for a couple of different reasons. Uh, First of all, most of the subsidies aren't coming from the federal government. They're coming from state governments. So most of the subsidy in higher education is built into the price. The government does not give you the money. It gives it directly to the institution, and the institution charges less. So the federal government kind of comes on top of that by handing out Pell Grants to low-income students and by subsidizing the cost of borrowing money for students who borrow. But most of the money is coming from state governments in the form of direct subsidies to institutions. So I suppose if we were really to just let the market do what the market will do, we would have to yank out probably a couple hundred billion dollars out of our, our higher education systems. Um, I think that would be immensely damaging to our higher education uh, systems, which are increasingly in direct competition with subsidized universities around the world, both to serve students and to conduct research. And, the, and those subsidies implicitly or explicitly subsidize the research mission of colleges as much as they subsidize students attending. Um, the other thing that would happen is that fewer people would go to college. If the government is going to stop keeping the price artificially down, then it will settle at a new point where we'll have fewer people going to college Um, uh, And uh, so that sort of raises the question of whether or not you think that is a good idea. My sense is that George thinks that is a good idea, and we'll explain why in a few minutes. Um, I do not. Uh, People learn important things when they go to college. We don't have an economy that is set up to thrive under any circumstances other than one in which we continue to invest in the human capital of our workforce. That's what's been keeping us going for the last... Uh, Thirty or 40 years, Um, even as the, I would just sort of, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, even as we have been subsidizing and subsidizing and subsidizing higher education, pushing more people through with higher education credentials, the return in the job market to those credentials has increased. So we are, the government is subsidizing supply, more supply, and yet, and yet the price of that thing we're subsidizing is going up, not going down. Um, so that says to me that we have an economy that demands higher education credentials, that needs more of them, um, and we certainly ought not to pursue a course of action that would take us in the other direction. Um, so the reason, that's why I support um, and am you know, an enthusiast for the uh, the transparency solution, the information solution. Um, I think that Neil's uh, contention that you can't boil down uh, what a college is to one measure is is somewhat of a straw man. Of course you can't. Um, nobody would do that. Uh, even the, me- the consumer measures that we have today, like U.S. News and World Report, which is sort of far and away the most popular and most influential consumer measure of higher education, takes about you know, 15 or 20 different numbers and boils it all down, you know, into one number. Like One number that is a function of many other numbers is not the same as one number that's the function of one number. Um, And consumers making choices in the end are going to have to decide. They're going to have to choose this institution or that institution or perhaps in the future as these things become more flexible, several institutions that they can use to um, put their higher education together, but they certainly can't go to all of them um, at one time. The other thing that we know, again, based on sort of what's happened over the last 30 years, is that higher education institutions will not voluntarily disclose information about themselves. They will not do it. And in fact, they have a very effective lobby here in Washington, D.C., which fights any attempt whatsoever um, to, to require any more... Uh, uh, information disclosure. And and I'll give you just one example to sort of the the lengths of absurdity that this has come to. Um, As, uh, you know, Mary Beth comes to us from USA Today. Uh, USA Today has actually done its own part to increase transparency in higher education by helping publish results from the National Survey of Student Engagement. Um, which gives you uh, not one number, but five numbers. And those five numbers are a function of about 80 numbers, which are uh, a very sophisticated survey of of, uh, institutional practices based on a representative sample of of students at hundreds of institutions. And one thing the information revolution has given us is many more ways now than we had 30 years ago, or even 10 years ago, to gather information about colleges, how well they serve their students, what that value added is. And there there are measures that are being developed to, to estimate that, um, in a cost-effective way that could be used to provide this kind of transparency. So a few years ago, the the government, the National Center for Education Statistics, was um, Suggested to colleges that uh, to make a change in the way that it gathers information. So right now, in 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 exchange for access to the federal Title IV system, which is this you know huge pot of many many billions of dollars, colleges have to report some information to the federal government in return. It's a pretty good deal for colleges, which is why why they all take it. Um, the the commissioner of the National C- Center for Education Statistics said, "Look, um, if." If you have chosen on your own to engage in this NESI, this this survey, and if you have chosen on your own to publish that information, um, tell us where it is. Send a, a little link in with your report that would show us where that information is so we can tell other people where it is. Um, the, the higher education lobby came down on him like a ton of bricks for making that suggestion to voluntarily disclose, to to disclose information that had already been disclosed so people could actually see it. That's the level of antipathy, um, that we have against disclosure of this information. And the reason is, uh, uh, the principal agent problem is a pretty good deal for the agent in this case. Um, that People like to be in this race for prestige. They like prestige. They like to spend their time uh, in the sort of pursuit of institutional glorification because that glorification reflects on the people who work there. The, the status quo where everybody keeps paying more money into the higher education system is quite good for the people who are in the system itself. They don't have any particular interest in getting away from that. Um, but that's the only really plausible way to get from here to there. Um, Again, for both uh, reasons of policy and reasons of feasibility, um, pulling huge amounts of public subsidies out of the system is a non-starter. Providing more transparency, however, is a real thing that could happen. I mean, I mean, you saw the spellings commission talk about this a few years ago. Um, this is, I think, a bipartisan agenda that you have uh, in the states among both Democrat and Republican legislators. They all are a little frustrated by the sort of standard higher education position, which is give us more money and don't ask us to ask us any questions. Um, so let's move to the give us more money but ask us a lot of questions. Uh, approach to higher education policy, which would, I think, um, bring more market discipline to the enterprise. Again, I, no, I think this whole price controls are crazy. I think this whole list that we're talking about, we're going to publish the, the, the ones that increase in cost, that's crazy. That's not going to work either. The government doesn't have any business telling colleges what to charge. I, th- I do think it is in the government does have a role to to compel uh, common comparable information um, in a way that makes markets act more efficiently. It's what it does in the private sector already. Um, there are pre- you know, plenty of companies out there that if they had the, the, the uh, option would rather not, at any one given time, report their quarterly results for this year. They'd rather hide it. They'd rather lie about it. They'd rather people not know that they screwed up and they lost, uh, they lost a bunch of money. They're not allowed to do that. Um, Because it's not in the interest of efficient markets for them to do that. It's not in the public interest for them to do that. Well, we are, and and yet, uh, colleges and universities, which are far more directly subsidized than our private enterprises, um, which are far more, I think, plausibly in the realm of public interest, um, than many of our private inter- enterprises somehow have fewer obligations to report information to the public. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think that a, uh, a transparency and market-based approach to this cost problem is actually one um, that one could imagine a bipartisan uh, a solution to that, that people on both the left and the right could come together and support that in a way that would uh, make a difference. And frankly, only that kind of bipartisan solution is going to uh, be sufficient to push back against, again, what are very strong, entrenched institutional interests in keeping their information out of the public eye. So thanks very much.
4: Well, like Kevin, uh, I found myself thinking about the, the history of this problem of the college cost crisis. Now, we, uh, as flying up here this morning. I was thinking, suppose that in 1969, there was no Cato back then, but suppose that some organization in Washington had held a conference uh, on the subject of the college cost crisis and what we can do about it. People would have scratched their heads and said, what are you talking about, college cost crisis? This is a fairly recent problem. That we uh, confront. And I think it's worth asking, well, why do we have it now that we didn't have it 40 years ago? What has changed? Well, the industry has not changed. It's still dominated by, as it always has been, by nonprofit organizations, government-run schools, mostly, and some nonprofit privates with a very tiny number of uh, for-profit private uh, institutions. But we have a mostly nonprofit industry like we always have had. So what's different now as uh, compared to uh, 40 years ago, let's say? Well, the big thing that's changed is, uh, there are two changes, and the big one is we're an enormously much wealthier society than we were 40 years ago. And college officials are extremely adept at tapping into increasing wealth. And they do that in two ways. They do that by lobbying for governmental largesse, And that turns out to be pretty much a big easy in politics. What politician worries about losing votes by supporting more money for education? No one ever worries about that. So Congress and state legislatures are a pretty easy touch when it comes to more money for education. It sounds good. No one can attack you. And then there's, of course, the private sector. And there are vast numbers of really wealthy alums out there who can be counted upon to write big checks for your uh, general fund each year, who can uh, be hit up for new buildings and to endow chairs. So they also are a great uh, source of funding for higher education that education leaders really know how to play upon. So with all this money coming in, why do we have a cost problem? Well, Neil stole a bit of my thunder. He quoted Bach. I was going to quote Bach. I don't usually agree with Derek Bach, but he's absolutely right on this. Uh, There's just never enough money for college presidents. There's always, there are numerous spending constituencies that are pleading for more money for themselves. So they spend everything they can possibly get their hands on from government sources, from private sources, and then they want to spend more. And that's the big point Bob was making, is that this is spending almost invariably in the pursuit of something so ephemeral as institutional prestige. And it doesn't necessarily translate much into educational value, a point Kevin has made. We don't know how much educational value is actually being added for all the money we spend and all the time that uh, kids are in college these days. Now, this brings me to the second thing that's changed. Not only are we a much wealthier society than we used to be, but the nature of students coming into college has changed as well. These days we have many, many more students in college who are there chiefly because they want to have a good time. Uh, yeah, there were party animals back in the 60s. I was there. And I wasn't one of them, but I knew a lot who were. Uh, but these days you find an awful lot of students whose main reason for wanting to be in college is, well, it's four or five years away from mom and dad and it's a lot of fun and who wants to get a job right now? So let's go to college and have fun. Well, this has something, to uh, an influence on the way they spend money. Sports and, and cushy amenities for the students doesn't do much for education, but that's what the students want. So we have this vast proliferation of expenditures on sports stadiums, and, and uh, let's say they have kayaking uh, in the student center at some university I read about recently, and a nice little stream you can uh, float down. It's, it's, the amenities are, are astounding, uh, and, of course, it adds to the cost. So in sum, we have a non-profit industry uh, with very weak oversight, college uh, regents and trustees and so forth, don't really do very much. Most of them don't want to do very much to try to direct spending in in the most uh, uh, educationally effective ways, and therefore a lot of the money is, is blown. And a lot of students wind up with huge amounts of debts and then a degree that, uh, well, a lot of them wind up working in very mundane jobs because we have a glut of college graduates. Maybe we'll get more into this discussion. Kevin thought it might be my main point, but it's not today. So what do we do about this? We have uh, prodigious expenditures largely at the expense of the, the taxpayers who are forced to support state institutions and federal financial aid programs. What can we do? Well, the suggestion in front of us, one of them, is we need more financial transparency. Well, I'm not against universities disclosing anything they want to disclose. And some universities are really quite transparent, and are are very open about their mission of giving a good quality education to their students at a reasonable price. And I looked up a couple this morning. Um, If you wanted to have a a son or daughter of yours go to Hillsdale College in Michigan, $27,000 total cost per year. Uh, If uh, you want to go cheaper than Hillsdale and yet still get a fine liberal arts education, Grove City College in Pennsylvania or Lindenwood University in Missouri uh, are about $20,000 a year each. So there are schools that aren't playing the prestige game. And if consumers want to find these schools, you can make the match. You can easily find them. They want to find you if you're interested in an affordable, quality education. As opposed to the, the education at many institutions, which is dominated by, as my friend Murray Sperber, a re- now-retired Indiana University professor puts it, <clears throat> the faculty-student non-aggression pact, which means easy work and high grades, but don't bother me because I want to write my books and do my research, uh, it's, it's, it's education in name only for many students. Now, what about the idea, though, that we'd get much better performance if we had more financial transparency? Well, let's imagine what happens. Suppose that we have mandated uh, disclosure of far more financial information than we now have. Well, that sounds sounds very nice, but what happens next? Uh, that's a question that uh, came, came to mind. In Thomas Sowell's most recent book, he was talking about one of his – earliest econ classes, and uh, the professor asked a question, and he eagerly gave an answer about some public policy he'd like to see, and the professor asked, well, what happens then? Well, all right, so what if we have financial disclosure? What happens then? Will that make any difference in the uh, decision-making process in, in colleges and universities? I really don't think so, because the spending constituencies are still going to want to spend the money, and the presidents are still going to keep those constituencies happy. For instance, um, is any university going to say, well, you know, we had plans to hire another diversity official on staff, but now that we're going to have to disclose information about how we're spending our money, we're, we're, we're just not going to hire that person. Or, dis- to dismiss some of the existing diversity people on staff. No, that's not going to happen. The spending constituencies are going to overwhelm whatever constituency for saving money might be catalyzed by having more disclosure of financial information. Now, what then about educational outcomes? Well, again, there are schools which, even though they probably can't quantify any of this, can make a very credible claim that because of the level of attention we give to our uh, students, They will get a good education here. It's not going to be the faculty-student non-aggression pact on our campus. Schools like Hillsdale, for example, which I think have a very credible claim to not wasting the student's time, but instead making sure that he gets a serious education. Recently, I was thinking about this problem. Um, Student writing Many people in the business community say that college graduates are terrible these days. They can't write worth a darn, and that's true. Why is that true? Well, a paper that the Pope Center published a few years ago was written by a retired North Carolina state professor who taught these composition classes. She pointed out that in many of these classes, the subject is really not quality writing, but instead it's whatever the, the professor's uh, mania happens to be, feminism or environmentalism or whatever. And so the, the, the class focuses not on can you write a good paragraph, but have you imbibed the, the notions of, from all these readings that uh, you, you've been assigned. Now, that's not going to teach students how to, how to write. And there's really no way to quantify that. In fact, it could be different from professor to professor in the same college. Now, if you want to find out, if I send my son or daughter to this school, will he or she get a good education in learning how to write the English language, probably nothing more important than that, you're going to have to dig hard to find out, what are the courses like in writing? And there's no way to quantify that, and there's no report that could possibly uh, substitute for digging into the information about uh, the, 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 the nature of the courses, the readings the, uh, the uh, assignments, the rigor uh, that, that with which they are graded, uh, that's, that can't be quantified. You just have to do that kind of hard stuff on your own. So I don't think this is going to uh, accomplish much. Further uh, disclosure of information won't help very much. There's one thing, however, in closing I'll say that I think is going to help uh, in a sort of a ironic way. Um, Back when he was on uh, Nixon's uh, cabinet as uh, Council of Economic Advisors chairman, Herb Stein, a uh, very funny guy, uh, one day there was a, dip- a dispute raging in a cabinet meeting and some official in the cabinet said, well, this just can't continue. And Stein interrupted and said, well, if it can't continue, it's going to stop. There's nothing the government has to do about it, necessarily. Well, I think that we may be at that point with respect to the the uh, incoming wealth into the higher education system. Uh, I think we're past the fat years. We had seven fat decades for higher education with increasing wealth. I think that's about to change. Uh, the wealth into the society is not going to be expanding as it was. There will be higher taxes on the people who might have contributed. Government budgets are not going to be going as much into education. They're going to be more into uh, fulfilling all of their entitlement obligations. And for this reason, there will probably be a whole lot less money flowing in. And in this system, with less money coming in, I think competition will become more intense uh, automatically. And you'll find more and more private Uh, providers of uh, of education, uh, like uh, some of the online ones. Kevin has written about this recently, and I seconded it in a piece I wrote for the Pope Center recently, that offer very good quality at very low price. Competition is probably what's going to be the game changer here, and I can't see that mere disclosing of information is going to make very much difference. Thanks very much.
0: Right. Um Thank you all four of you and we'll go ahead and see if anybody has responding comments and Bob already has his hand up. Um,
1: I'd like to make a couple of comments, I guess. The and be sure in talking to your oh, uh, The first would be with respect to information metrics. Um, <clears throat> it's common for people in higher education to reject different kinds of uh, value-added metrics on the basis of the metric not being perfect. Uh, but that's really a red herring across the problem. And the reason is because of the fact that perfect information is really inefficient in a world of uncertainty. Uh, and the reason for that is because information is costly. So nobody can really afford ever to get perfect information. We also know uh, from practical experience in higher education that you do not have to have perfect information in order to um, to have a very efficient market work in a certain area, and we know that because of the market for senior scholars. Uh, the information that uh, is generated about scholarship, for example, is certainly not perfect. Um, you, 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 you make your, your bones, so to speak, in, in research on the basis of the level of the journal in which you publish these things. Uh, but you may, may be a co-author, you may be a single author. Uh, the journal may be published in a top-level journal and then never cited again, so the number of citations is a, uh, an important aspect of that. The same thing holds true with regard to scholarly books. Uh, the information generated by that process is certainly not perfect information. Uh, it is not a one-to-one scalar to high-quality research, but the information is sufficient to establish a very viable market for senior scholars. What many people probably do not realize is that there is no market for senior teachers. If you are 45 years old uh, and you've taken a career in teaching, you do not have mobility. You will not be able to find another job at another institution with tenure on the basis of a teaching record. And the reason for that market failure is because there is no information about the value added uh, that you have uh, been responsible for throughout your, uh, your career. So a moment's look at what creates a, uh, a, um, a viable market for senior scholars will help you understand the kind of information that's really required to establish a corresponding market for senior teachers. The absence of a market for senior teachers with mobility up until they're 45 and 50 years old, for instance, is the reason why undergraduate education uh, basically is a stepchild in most of higher education, why there aren't any really powerful advocates for high-quality undergraduate experience is because those people don't exist. The people with mobility don't exist. What we know about the market for senior scholars is that the information required Uh, to establish that uh, market comes from a third-party source. It comes from the the journal publishers, it comes from the book publishers, uh, and it comes from the acceptance or rejection of that work on the part of the academic community as large. It does not come from the individual scholar or the institution for which that scholar works. Uh, Indeed, if it were left up to the institution, they'd rather not have that not known because that's how those scholars get hired away from those institutions because the institutions themselves have no incentive to provide that information. same thing is true with respect to uh, high-quality teaching. They have no incentive to let the public know who are our very best teachers because if they did that, then there would be other institutions that would raid that institution, make an offer to... um, uh, to that well-known uh, senior teacher and attract them away, and they would lose those people. As it stands now, since there is no information about value-added in teaching, if you are an institution trying to find uh, new teachers and you make an offer to another institution, you don't know whether that's really a great teacher or not. But you will know that that the institution, if it is a great teacher, will counter that offer If it is a poor teacher, they will not counter the offer, and you get an adverse selection result, you hire a poor teacher. So that market doesn't exist, and the reason is because of the absence of that information. Information does not have to be perfect. It just merely has to be efficient enough to establish a market for for those senior teachers, and that doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is because theory of reputation competition and experienced goods there's an incentive, a financial incentive for the institutions not to provide that information. It's a financial advantage for there to be ambiguity about uh, quality uh, of uh, undergraduate teaching.
0: Great. Thanks. Neil, you're ready.
2: Yeah, I have a whole laundry list here, but I'll I'll try and just hit a few, and then I'll throw some out just as quick statements maybe to get people thinking about them, and you can ask them in question and answer. Um, I do want to point out, though, about the question about perfect knowledge and imperfect knowledge, and I think that you're absolutely right. We have imperfect knowledge about just about everything we buy. I mean, if I want to go get a painter, I can pie go see a house or two that he painted, but I don't know lots of things about him. I have to get somebody who had that painter tell me whether or not he was any good. If I want to buy a car, since I'm not a mechanic and I'm not a car expert, I have to rely on People who are experts on cars to tell me where they're good. And, yes, I could test drive a car, but I don't really learn a whole lot. I don't learn nearly as much as I need to about the full quality of a car, driving it around the block a couple of times. Um, restaurants. I don't know whether I've been to a good restaurant until after I'm there, but there are guides to help me with that. I mean, uh, if you read the Washington Post, Tom Seatsuma writes a lovely column, and he gives writings to restaurants to help you because you have imperfect knowledge. Well, guess what? We have the same thing in higher education. Now, people like to say, well, the U.S. news report, it's terrible, it's based on endowments, and it's based on all sorts of things that it's not what's really most important about higher education. And it's true, there are lots of things in there that I think aren't all that important, but it also gives you graduation rates, um, it gives you retention rates, it gives you also how much people are, what percentage of graduates are donating back to that college, which is a pretty good indicator of whether or not they were happy with the product. And we don't just have U.S. news. Forbes, and I see some of the folks who've worked on this right here, Forbes now puts out a competing third-party evaluation of colleges and universities. The uh, ISI, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, puts out a guide on where the colleges are going to go learn particular things. Um, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni just put out a new guide who has core curricula. There is a lot of information about higher education. I don't think we're any worse off picking, with that information, we're picking a college and we are for restaurants and we are for, for um, cars or anything like that. And those things exist because there are consumers for higher ed. This is a lot better than say K through 12 where you pretty much go where you're assigned. There's a little more choice now, but at least consumers have choice. So I would say we do have lots of information, and the argument is, well, it's imperfect. We're not happy with it. Which then brings me to, I think, one of the other important points here is that, well, Kevin says it's unrealistic to think that we're going to reduce student aid, and that, and apparently if we do reduce student aid, you know, that that's going to lead to all sorts of terrible things. Well, first of all, I don't think it's unrealistic to think we could reduce student aid, and I think it's unrealistic to think that the solution that, We know we could get transparency, and I'm going to go back to something that Kevin said. And he said higher education has a very effective lobby here in Washington, D.C., and that they have defeated efforts to be transparent. Why, then, do we think that suddenly we're going to change what goes on in politics And that these people suddenly give in and say, oh, sure, we'll be transparent. If you tell me to give you this information, we're going to be totally honest about it. We can see through the history of regulation that doesn't happen. We can see in No Child Left Behind that doesn't happen. And we can see in higher education that they have a huge power here because all the benefits are them, right? Concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. They have huge power to defeat things they don't like. So I think it's unrealistic to think that transparency will change these things. And I also think that if you consider why companies give information to investors, I don't think there's proof and I don't even think there's strong evidence that they do it because government tells them to. They do it because people won't invest if they don't know price earnings ratios and things like that. This is not to say government doesn't have a role in finding out if a company lies about their data, then they're, then they're prosecuted for it, but of course that's a role of government to keep us from being defrauded. and inflicting injury on each other. But to say because government says, put this information out there and they'll do it, seems, seems um, unrealistic to me. And then the last thing I'd say, because I've already taken up more of my time, is um, uh, Professor Fritzler, who was the, the president of Dickinson College and was one of the people who was involved in our initial discussions, I was in a class of his, so uh, I hope I'm getting what he said right. And if not, please write to him and he can publicly rebuke me. <laughs> But he said that he, uh, when he was at Dickinson, he was getting an audit done. I guess it was every five years or so. You had a major audit, and the auditor said, "Well, would you also like us to look into how well you're complying with rules and regulations from the state, local governments, and federal governments that are supposed to control your university?" He said, "Well, sure. Let's let's do that. I think they were throwing it in for free, you know, so why not?" Um, And what he said is, the auditors came back and said. Your, your university is only really compliant with about 40% of rules and regulations. Now, that might not be exactly the, the percentage, but it was around there. And he said, oh, this is terrible. What are we going to do? And they said, well, that's terrific, 40%. Do you know how many rules and regulations there are out there? Most institutions don't even get to that level. And it's because we write rules and regulations for everything, But it's it's gotten so great, so vast, that nobody could possibly even know what they all are. Why do we think that just adding some more, aside from the fact that people will avoid them, why do we think adding more will even be something that computes with colleges and universities, that they can follow because they can't follow most of the rules and regulations that apply to them now? So I think the transparency argument through government suffers from a huge reality gap with what we know about the effect of regulation. And I think if we look at the data, it is clear that the reasons that the principals can charge so much is because the agents, if we think of the consumers as the agents, they're being agents with someone else's money. And the people who are actually paying for this are taxpayers who really have no agency because politicians, yes, they vote for them. But after that, politicians do things without really consulting them. That's my rebuttal. Okay.
3: Kevin? Um, Well, a a couple things. Uh, It's true. There is, uh, in some ways, a lot of information about higher education out there. Uh, U.S. News and World Report has been publishing rankings since 1983. Since 1983, colleges doubled in price uh, after inflation. So clearly that information wasn't good enough to defeat the sort of substantial uh, uh, problems that I think Bob ably described. Um, in, in fact, if you look at the U.S. news rankings, while they do have graduation rates in them, 10%, 10% of the rankings is spending per student. 25% is reputation, this ephemeral thing that colleges want to essentially increase at the expense of students. So so in a, in a lot of ways, some of the information we have is either obviously insufficient to um, do what we need it to do to keep prices down, or it's making it worse, I mean, because that's what's happened over the last 30 years. Um, I think uh, uh, to to address uh, George's point, um, a couple of George's points, one, um, I don't think that it is, in fact, so hard to come up with some good, uh, reasonable measures of what students learn. And and there is nothing whatsoever in U.S. news about that. Um, And writing is actually a good example. Um, Sure, writing is complicated. Uh, I'm willing to bet that if you were to find an objectively poor writer and an objectively good writer and give the five of us here – uh, samples of their writing and ask us to to distinguish between the, the two of them, I'll bet all five of us would come to the same conclusion. Uh, writing is complicated, but it's, it's observable. You can make these judgments about good writing um, and communication. And in fact, there is a test that's available right now that's being used voluntarily by hundreds of colleges and universities. It's called the Collegiate Learning Assessment. Um, they're doing it because the colleges. no one is forcing them to do it. They're doing it because they think it's a valid measure of how much students they, – they sample a, a – uh, they, they test a sample of freshmen and they test a sample of seniors and they look at the difference between those scores to get a sense of this value-added measure. Um, the problem with the collegiate learning assessment, as with pretty much everything in higher education, is that, again, that information is kept from the public by the institutions. That's the deal. They'll only – uh, subject themselves to this kind of evaluation if they can control the data. So some of them are putting the information out there. There was the University of Nebraska at Omaha got a really, really good score. And so they issued a press release saying our scores are really, really good. And, and maybe that was good for them. Maybe they attracted a few students. But you can't have a situation where people only tell good news about themselves um, in a way that makes sense to them. That That is not going to defeat these very substantial um, problems of institutional incentives. And so it really comes back around to uh, Derek Bach's very, great quote, and he's absolutely right about that. <clears throat> uh, the, situa- the, the system we have now allows institutions to behave that way. It allows them to run around and get as much money from possible as possible from everyone um, <clears throat> and spend it in ways that really benefit them more than the people they got their money from. Um, I don't want to uh, thwart institutional ambition. I think our higher education system has benefited greatly from a relatively unregulated um, approach to higher education. It's what makes our system better than other countries. We've let a thousand flowers bloom. We have a very robust uh, private nonprofit sector. Now we have a very robust private for-profit sector. Um, we've let all of these institutions uh, act in their own interests, and as such, we have a very wealthy system, a very diverse system, a very popular system. Um, but that has come at some consequences. What I want to do is harness that ambition in a, a way that's a little more directed toward the public interest. Make thing, make the world such that um, institutions can't be quite that selfish, um, that they have to... Uh, respond to some of these tough questions about, are you teaching well? How much are your students learning? Um, And then that would lead them to a different set of decisions, both about learning, and and learning is not as good as it it needs to be in a lot of institutions, but also about pricing. Um, It would allow them, it would actually allow them to compete with one another on value, which they really can't do right now. If you think of value as being the ratio of quality to price, since we don't know what quality is right now, people think quality and price are the same thing, um, you, you couldn't go into the higher education market right now and say, you know what, I'm just as good as I was last year, but I'm 20% cheaper. Or you know what, I'm 10% worse than I was last year, but I'm 50% cheaper. No one can do that right now. That kind of rational decision-making takes place in all kinds of normal markets where there's real information about quality. It never happens in higher education. So, of course, prices continue to go up.
0: And George.
4: Oh, I'll just make a a very brief comment, and then, wow, you people ask your questions. I think that we're... When we think about institutional prestige, institutional uh, learning outcomes, we're asking the wrong thing. We should be asking about the individual, not the institution, because, after all, institutional averages can mask all kinds of ups and downs. Uh, At the college where I taught many, many, many years ago, I had a few students who were exceptionally good and learned an awful lot of uh, the stuff I taught, economics and business law. And there are lots of others who slept through and earned their D's and F's. What you learn about the school though is not important. What you want to find out is what did the individual learn? Now, I think we may be at a at a breakthrough on this. Uh, and again, it was Kevin's article in, about the uh, straighter line that got me thinking along these lines. Here was a, he was writing about a woman who was out of work and wanted some evidence to show employers that she was competent in mathematics. So she took a couple of classes from this uh, online uh, uh, company, Straighterline that offers uh, uh, $99 per month. You can take as many courses of theirs as you want to. Now, she learned a lot. This is good stuff she was taking. Uh, she was, had mentors available. She really learned a lot about the statistics class she was taking. The, the question is not, is straighter line any good, or is Harvard any good, or is uh, Duke any good, or any other school? The question is, did the individual learn anything? Is the individual capable? Now, there's a reason why I think we have difficulty in, in uh, identifying individual capability, and that's uh, in a paper, explained in a paper that the Pope Center published a few years ago, on uh, the impact of Dr- Griggs versus Duke Power, that made aptitude testing by uh, employers uh, a legal minefield that they've uh, decided it's uh, better to avoid, and so it's difficult for employers or prospective uh, 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 prospective employers to get good information about people. Now, if they if they can break through that. The, and I, the, the recent Ricci case seems in the Supreme Court seems to suggest that, yeah, you're, you, you may be safe if you have uh, decent testing that is not clearly designed uh, to uh, keep out people uh, of certain races. Then you can do this. If employers can start testing the individual, they're, they're not going to care whether you learned your statistics at Straighter Line or at Harvard. They'll just care, did you learn your stuff? And if we make that breakthrough and start focusing on individual capabilities, all the discussion about institutional prestige and institutional disclosure information it becomes moot. So let's have Q&A now.
0: All right. Wow. All right. Your hand was up first. Give
4: the name and affiliation.
0: Oh,
5: what did you want? Give the name and affiliation.
0: Give us your name and affiliation. Name
5: and affiliation. Hank and uh, no affiliation. None that I want to give anyway. Um, uh, this follows up by actually... Uh, George Lee's comment, I, I believe that there's a, really an elephant in the room when we talk about education that no one seems to talk about. And that is the, I call it the degree licensing um, marriage or conspiracy. This whole idea that education, um, which is really top down, any other product or service that I go to the store, I tell them what I want they may make recommendations i may ask them questions when i go to the co- when i go to a college they tell me yes you have certain choices in degrees but you have to get a degree and we're going to tell you what kind of pro- programs all these courses people going to a college for these letters and science degrees who have no interest in intellectual education need these in order to say go to a professional school law school um, I I bet, I'm a lawyer, and I bet that I could take somebody out of high school and, in a year of intensive training, have them write wills better than somebody who's fresh out of law school who has taken one course in trust in the states and could not possibly be competent to write a will, but we allow him to write a will because he's got a a license. and my the my point is, isn't the real problem this whole college degree business that a person can't go to college and say I've got some skills that I want to pick up, I'm gonna create a new profession for myself because I see a and I want certain things, so I'm gonna pick out what I want, and but we've made this degree world, which is married. To the uh, what I would call the the licensing world that I call it the un, my I call it the unholy alliance um, between licensing and degrees, so my question to you is simply, don't you think this is really when it comes to the cost and all the resources spent in education a much bigger factor than anything you guys have been talking
4: about yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you're right. Um, the the mania for credentials is is the other thing that's big change since since the you know let's say 1960s. Uh, there wasn't such a mania for credentials. There's a tremendous mania for credentials right now, and credentials don't necessarily mean you've learned anything. That uh, and they certainly don't mean you couldn't have learned it someplace else or learned it quicker. And you know, I, I'm intrigued by what you said about you could take a student out of college and, and an intensive training teach them to write better. I, Out of high school. you know, Years ago, I said to my my oldest friend in the world, who's a Harvard lawyer and been a partner in a big firm for a long time, I said, suppose you could choose. We have 10 students here. They're all going to an Ivy League school. They're really bright kids, and they want to go in the legal profession. Uh, And you get to choose five of them and just take them into your firm right now and start teaching them how to do – legal stuff. The other five will go to Harvard or Princeton, and then they'll go to a prestige law school, and then you can hire them. And, and I asked him, which do you think would be the better group of lawyers? He said the ones I, I would take right out of high school. So yes, credentialing is, is a, a very expensive substitute for other kinds of learning that people do.
0: Bob indicated he had
1: some. Yeah. Um, the colleges and universities actually provide two services. They provide the credentialing service, uh, and they provide the educational value-added that takes place in the, in the classroom. Uh, and what you see uh, in the that quality hierarchy is that the institutions at the bottom of the hierarchy, basically, they're competing on the basis of uh, value-added. Very little credentialing going on there. Uh, the kind of credentials you get from a, a state university at some place, for example, is not going to open a lot of doors. On the other hand, we all know that the credential you get from a um, uh, an Ivy League school, for instance, will open a lot of doors. It also will promise you that you will earn a degree with some of the best and the brightest in the world, and that networking opportunity is very, very valuable. Um, the thing is that one of the, the 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 information that's available about credentialing is very good. I mean, we all know who has the best credentials, so there's very little uncertainty about credentialing there's a great deal of uncertainty about educational value added. So the reason why you've seen these, these really bizarre behavior on the part of parents is a rational response to what it is they know. Uh, they know the credentials matter. They know where they can get those credentials, and that's why they will pull out all the stops uh, to get their, uh, their children enrolled in the very best high-credential institutions. The problem is with the uh, the value-added educational
3: value-added part. And Kevin, yeah, I think the I mean the the, the the downside to going right out of high school and learning having somebody teach you to be really good at writing wills is what if you move and you want to go somewhere else and you move like what if you say I'm going to move across the country I'm going to live in Los Angeles and then you want to get a job uh, uh, writing wills how do you prove that you're good at it. Um, there's this one person across the country, they know you're good at it, but you can't, when you move around or or, or try to get another job, um, one, you can only do wills, and two, it's very hard for you to prove to someone else that you're good at wills. And people, we have a very mobile society. Um, we have uh, a society where people change careers often. That's why, again, rationally, people are very, very focused on getting education credentials. I'm all in favor of, of Opening up our credentialing system, making it more flexible, making it more innovative, perhaps breaking the relationship between those who provide credentials um, and those who provide education, but there's going to have to be some rational basis for offering better, better credentials, and really that brings us back around to having some sort of system of making judgments about how much students learn in any variety of settings. The straighter line example that, that George, and, and thank you for bringing up the article I wrote, um, uh, I recommend it highly to all of you here today. Um, uh, is a pretty good example of that. So here you have an entrepreneur um, who wants to go out and offer very, very inexpensive education online. He's got, there are two things standing in his way. One is something we haven't talked about, which is uh, uh, the sort of government supported accreditation system, which is basically this again, we can probably all agree, I, I suspect, that uh, you, you basically have a, a, a captured regulation system where the incumbents are, are keeping new entrants out of the market and we ought to, to, to change that. But the other thing is this perceptual problem he has. People think a cheap online degree is bad. People people are just inherently skeptical that a ninety nine dollar online class could be any good. They're very, very skeptical. He has and he will say this to you if you ask him, he has no basis for proving that his classes are as good as a regular class because there are no common metrics. There are no common means of assessment. There's no teaching measure out there that he can plug into where he can just say, look, I'm just as good as everybody else, and I'm much cheaper.
0: Next. I'm going to have another question, uh, and let's keep it to the point. We're running out of time.
6: I'm sure, I'm Sandy Ginsberg. I'm with the Committee for Education Funding. And I have a question for Kevin Carey. You were talking about how it's so hard to, you know, have a thing that measures the value of a college. And I think, you know, I'm not sure that there is one that exists yet, but I would beg to disagree because I think it would be fairly easy to do an econometric study, or as easy as it can be for an econometric study, to measure the value of an education after controlling for other factors. Like, you know, they already have those studies out that, show the effects of wages on years of education after controlling for race, gender, marriage, etc. Why not make one on the effect of wages of a certain school after controlling for the schools, say, prestige through rankings or their spe- spending on sports, their fraternity percentage of students in that sure. at, for partying? Why, how hard would that be? Uh, it's, a,
3: it's a great idea. We should do that. Um, and we haven't talked about it much, but I think uh, uh, employment outcomes for graduates uh, are another part of this conversation in addition to tests or surveys or whatever. So here's what you would need to do that. You would need some sort of information system where you could, at at a reasonable cost, uh, uh, know who was in a certain college and then track them into the workforce, see what kind of job they got and how much money. Um, You can do that in some states right now. In the state of Florida, the state of Florida could conduct exactly that, that analysis if they wanted to. They have connected their, uh, uh, their higher education data systems to their employment data systems. So a few years ago, um, in the, the federal government proposed actually having a national uh, uh, data system that would allow some sort of common measure in theory. They didn't sort of come out and say this, but it, you, could, you could sort of see the, the writing on the wall. Where you could do exactly that study, um, the higher education lobby totally squashed it. I mean, absolutely came out and went crazy about it and, and, and actually went to Congress and had Congress pass a law making it illegal for the government to even collect common information at the individual student level that would uh, 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 allow for the kind of analysis that you're talking about. And this is just one small point. This kind of brings me back to something Neil said. Uh, none of this is easy. Um, the, I think that the sort of establishment will push back in both directions. However, I think only the institutions benefit from lack of transparency institutions and lots and lots of other people benefit from huge subsidies so it's going to be a lot easier to fix the first problem than the second one okay neil did you
6: want to
2: say something? Uh, yeah i want to well first of all i mean i think that employment and and maybe salary afterwards is important to a lot of people but that's hardly what many people go to school for so to just say well the end all for whether or not a school is good is how much their graduates earn is really narrowing significantly what college is about. Um, I think that it's important though that again, and and Kevin started to talk about this, was again the lobbyists have, when the government has tried to impose transparency, they've just squashed it. Now I think there are good reasons for that. There are legitimate privacy concerns about having government collect information on everything you do from cradle to grave. There there are legitimate concerns about that, but I don't think that's why higher education squashed it. it, They squashed it because it would be inconvenient and because they can. and and they continue to do that, and they have done that. And I can't see how we keep looking back at history and keep talking about how they do this repeatedly, and then say the realistic option is to have the government require them to be transparent when they have never been able to do it. Uh, and I think that we're missing also the main point about this discussion, which is what's causing the college cost spiral? Why do the prices keep going up? And I haven't heard anybody give a good reason that it's not the aid, even if you want to say that more Transparency would help people be better consumers, as I showed in my slides it 's very clear that people can keep paying higher and higher prices because someone else is giving them the money, and colleges can charge those because someone else is giving their consumers the money so if we want to talk about the cost spiral i don 't see how we don 't continue how we cannot address that very clear problem, and I think it 's totally unrealistic to think that we can require government to say there 's certain reporting and then expect Rational pricing when someone is saying is giving you money and saying, go ahead and spend it. It's not yours. It's not really mine. So go ahead. Spend it on higher education and see if the price doesn't go up.
0: I think we have time for lots of questions and back here. You in the, you, the guy who's...
6: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Noah Mamis. I'm from the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. My question is for Mr. McCluskey, um, and I don't mean to sound like an angry lefty when I ask it. Um, I, agree that I agree with your proposition that that the uh, discounted price, uh, because it's discounted, leads to increases in the sticker price. My concern is that reducing the amount of aid available to people who need the discounted price doesn't actually lower the sticker price for the people who need the lower prices. right? So that lower prices at the higher level make it harder for poor people who are qualified, who want to get into college and who can use college. It makes it harder for them and puts up impediments.
2: Well, I'm glad the angry... I'm
6: sure, that, I'm sure that the Cato Institute always has an answer for these Yeah,
2: things. well, and I'm glad the angry lefty over there asked that question. Uh, but I know that ACTA is not always angry and not always lefty, so uh, we'll let that go. Um, but, you know, you bring up an important point, which is something I wanted to address a little earlier, but there just had not been time, which is that markets are dynamic. So it's wrong to think that, well... Colleges charge X now. And by the way, somebody mentioned that, well, they were just reading about a college where you can go kayaking and things like that. They're probably talking about one of my favorite ridiculous college things, which is the Tiger Grotto at the University of Missouri, where they have basically an indoor water park. <laughs> and you think about the gourmet food people or students now demand and the, exorbit- and the extravagant buildings and, and, and the arms race. They talk about in terms of getting celebrity professors and more buildings and things like that. Well, that is essentially waste. Now, if you had people paying their own money, you would—you wanted to bring them in, you'd lower prices. And what you would do is not probably cut the actual educational part. You'd cut all the waste, the extravagances, those things that might be nice to have, just like they're nice to have on a carnival cruise, but they're not really about education. So when we consider that markets are dynamic, if we, if we phased out aid, it wouldn't be that in the long run it just mean only rich people could go. It would mean that the institutions would have to respond to the fact that people are paying with their own money and cut out a lot of the extravagances. Uh, and students would have to respond to that. And both colleges and students would say, "Boy, we can't really afford the Tiger Grotto anymore." And so I guess I'll have to mix my own protein uh, uh, protein shakes while I sit in front of the artificial waterfall and watch Zoo TV. Um, and so. This is all there. You can look it up on their website. And so markets are dynamic, and when we cut the aid, it doesn't mean the prices will stay the same. It means institutions and consumers will have to respond.
0: What do you think? Can we squeeze one more in? Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll squeeze one more in, and this woman had her hand up.
6: Hi. um, I'm Marie Sherrod. I'm one of those online students. Um, I'm at Strayer University. And this isn't for any one particular panel member. Um, I wonder whether any of them would, would like to comment on um, either a um, what I call uh, hidden curriculum and the cost of hidden curriculum, meaning you're you have a textbook you're supposed to teach from, but you're really ignoring that textbook and you're just saying your own thing while we're all sitting there, or b um, well I'll just leave it at that. Thanks.
4: Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Um, I, I, I wrote an article earlier this year about a, a case that had come to light up in Canada where the professor not only didn't go with the textbook, he didn't even go with the subject matter of the course. He, he did what he called uh, uh, squatted the course. It was supposed to be on physics, and he said, well, look, I don't, I don't want to talk about physics. I want to talk about the uh, danger to the earth. So that's what we're going to be talking about uh, in, in the next 15 weeks. Uh, It's a darn shame that professors can get away with that. It was around to a breach of contract. But there's very little discipline upon professors who uh, deviate and decide to just uh, try to save their world, not on their own time, to uh, advert to the title of a book by Stanley Fish, but rather on on college time. And it it speaks ill of uh, the discipline that they can get away with it.
3: But I mean, isn't isn't the problem that you didn't know that ahead of time, right? Nobody told you. It's not like you when you went on the Strayer website. It said, "Oh, well, here's like four sections of this class, and these two are actually going to teach the the curriculum. But if this one, forget it. You're not going to learn anything." There's- well, so, so there's no there's no there's no cost to the institution of essentially breaching its contract with you that way. There's no, they never get caught. There's no accountability for it. So the solution is to have accountability for it. The solution is to, if you were to kind of look and say, oh, you know, if an institution would have reasons to discipline that kind of behavior if there were any negative consequences of it. There isn't now, but there would be if we had more transparency about how much people learn.
1: There's actually a term for it in the research in higher education economics. It's referred to as destructuring the curriculum. Uh, and that um, uh, that was brought to light in the early 80s, and then Massey and Zimsky did a, a comprehensive statistical analysis of curriculum and found that, yes, that's exactly true. That's going on at a, uh, an accelerated rate. Um, and what it means basically is not only teaching a topic that was not even in the, uh, not even in the curriculum, but it also means uh, allowing people to proliferate uh, specialty courses that have really little to do with the main core curriculum, uh, not forcing students to take um, courses in a logical curricular order so that they have they're building on previous class experience. They now take them whenever they want to, and so they go into classes really unprepared for the next step. Uh, And uh, Zimski, in his most recent book, was talking about that, um, the one on higher education reform, making it possible, uh, and saying that his comment was that that, uh, this was well-documented, well-publicized, and then the faculty just simply ignored it uh, and said, uh, well, you know, it's really kind of inconvenient for us to... um, uh, to not be able to teach courses we want to teach, it's, it's, it would require us to sort of look over the shoulder of our fe- uh, fellow faculty members to make sure they were doing the right things, and it just would make life too uncomfortable. So nothing has been done about that problem, in essence, uh, a well-documented problem since the late 80s. Well,
2: I would just say to that, though, that there is increasing research and knowledge about for-profit schools, and, and Australia is one. I don't know that how Strayer responds to a lot of these things, but from what we do know, many for-profit schools, first of all, offer a stripped-down curriculum where you don't take a whole bunch of, of additional classes that really don't have anything to do with the skills you're trying to get. Um, so you'd have less opportunity to go to some class where they don't teach you anything like you're expecting. And most of these classes, the teachers, the, the professors, they're not doing research. They're getting paid to teach that class. They're evaluated on how they're teach that class the content is standardized across the system if you talk about the university of phoenix things like that and what holds these schools accountable is first of all they have investors who want to get their money and they have customers now but still customers are insensitive to a lot of these things because again much of that is paid by third parties it's paid through student aid, but these for-profit schools do seem to offer a much more direct curriculum that gets right to what the people who are attending want, and it's because of their for-profit status. Okay. I think that's better. Okay,
0: oh, it's we time, to, time to have lunch. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for coming Ben, for a great panel.